Hey, this is David Merrill, pastor of the Well Church. I would like to first thank you for downloading the app and listening to what God is doing through the life and ministry of the Well Church. I would also ask that before you listen to this message, that you would pray that God not only continues to transform lives through this ministry, but also that as you hear the Word of God proclaimed, pray that the Holy Spirit would convict you in areas that your life has not been given over to God, empower you to repent and turn, but also embolden you to be doers of the word and not simply hearers, in order that you become a light in your homes, in your schools, in your workplaces, and even in your local church body. Let us be radically in love with Jesus and radically in love with his people. Once again, I just thank you for listening and may God bless you abundantly. We've been going through the series on the parables of Jesus and and I'm not really sure, to be honest with you, how much longer we're going to be going through it. Um, I'm just going week at a time, just picking a parable and kind of seeing where God leads. Um, so it could be, well, there's only so many parables, but it could be up to, you know, maybe it's the summer, but I, I don't think that. I think we're going to be ending, so, you know, in the next month or so. Um, but we're going to be talking about a very important topic this morning, and Jesus addresses a very important topic. But if you remember last week, we went through the parable of that what comes into a man does not defile him, but what comes out of a man is what defiles them. And so we had this whole kind of conversation about this idea that that our nature is changed, that we are a new creation. And so when we sin, we're not sinning according to who we are. Therefore, our sins actually become contrary to who you are as a a, a person with Christ in you, living in Christ, a new nature. You sin not because of who you are anymore. So it's not like, oh, I'm only human. I'm going to sin. No, your new nature is Christ in you. And so when we sin, we sin contrary to who we are. We actually go outside of who. That's why the Bible says we're waging war against ourselves when we walk into sin. And if you remember, at the very end of the sermon, we talked about how we fight this battle against temptation. And one of the ways that we fight the battle is by prayer, um, is that we get on our face. When we are being tempted, we turn to Jesus in prayer. And he gives us the authority and the power to overcome, not only overcome, but he gives us the source. He gives us the, the fruit of the Spirit coming out of our lives, changing us from the inside out. Now, so we're going to piggyback on that idea of prayer this morning, and uh, we're going to be talking about how, what Jesus says about prayer. Jesus is going to give us the purpose of prayer. He's going to teach us the, the ways to pray, the content of prayer, and he's going to teach us um, the meaning of prayer. And so before we jump in, we're going to be in Luke chapter 11. Before we jump in, I want to read an A.W. Tozer quote. Uh, one of my favorite quotes in his book, The Knowledge of the Holy. He says this. He says, what comes into our minds when we think about God is the most important thing about us. The history of mankind will probably show that no people has ever risen above its religion. The man's spiritual history will positively demonstrate that no religion has ever been greater than its idea of God. Worship is pure or base as the worshiper entertains high or low thoughts of God. For this reason, the gravest question before the church is always God himself. And the most important fact about any man is not what he at any given time says or does, but what he in his deep heart conceives God to be like. We tend by a secret law of the soul to move towards our mental image of God. Were we able to extract from any man a complete answer to the question, what comes into your mind when you think about God, we might predict with certainty the spiritual future of that man. A right conception of God is basic, not only to systematic theology, but also to practical Christian living. Uh, it, is worship, or it is to worship what the foundation is to the temple. Where the, it's inadequate or out of plumb, the whole temple will must sooner or later collapse. I believe there is scarcely an error in doctrine or a failure in applying Christian ethics that cannot be traced finally, to imperfect and dishonorable thoughts about God. So it's what comes to your mind when you think about God. And and the truth is, is your spiritual maturity, my spiritual maturity, our spiritual maturity is based on our understanding of who God is. The difference between a immature believer and a mature believer is that a mature believer has a proper view 
of God. That's what John says in 1 John. He says that the mature, the fathers, right, they know him who is from the beginning. So John says the reason the maturity is as evident by they know him. They know him. This is actually what Paul says in Philippians. I think it's Philippians. He says in Philippians 3, he says that my supreme goal is to know Christ. So my question to you this morning is, are you searching? Is your supreme goal to know God? To know who God is? to know his divine attributes, to know that God is eternal, to know that God is omni, uh, omnipotent, meaning all-powerful, to know that God is unchangeable, which means that he is the same today, tomorrow, and forever, and that he doesn't change with our cultures, to know that God is omnipresent. He is right here in this room. He's right there where the people watching. He's right there in Tanzania, Africa, at this moment, worshiping with the saints. He is always, he's everywhere at all times, at all places. He is transcendent meaning he is not bound to our natural laws. He is not bound to what we see and what we feel and what we touch, right? He created all things, and he is not limited by all things. He's not limited by the medical system. He's not limited by your doctor. He's not limited by any of it. He transcends it all. He's over all. He's beyond all, right? Amen? Now, now, when we talk about knowing God, it's not enough to just memorize. This is not about a, a spiritual exercise of meditating and memorizing the attributes of God. This is about truly believing who God is and his nature. This is why Job says it this way in 42. He says, I know that you can do everything. I mean, do we, can we say that? I literally, I really believe, I know you can do everything and that no purpose of yours can be withheld from you. Isaiah says it this way in 42, he says, or 46, he says, remember the former things of old, for I am God and there is no other. I am God and there is none like me. I declare the end from the beginning and the ancient times and from ancient times things that are not yet done, saying my counsel shall not stand and I will do all my pleasure. Paul says in Ephesians 1 that God works all things after the counsel of his will. So once again, John says that what's going to separate a believer, a mature believer and a young believer, is that we have a mature believer will have a knowledge of who God is and believe it, trust it, and put faith in the, in the nature and attributes and character of who God is. Now, with that being said, this morning we're going to answer one of the biggest questions that I've, that I've gotten as a pastor. It's one of the biggest questions that I've, I've, I've ever had, actually, just as a pastor. And I've wrestled with this, and many of us probably have wrestled with this. In light of who God is, in light of him being sovereign, right, his will being accomplished, in light of him being transcendent, he's, he's beyond all things, in light of him being omnipresent, all-powerful, omniscient, as long as it's light of him being holy, the question is, why do we pray, right? If God's will will be done, why should we pray? How does prayer help things? What's, how does that work together? God's sovereignty and his will being accomplished in our prayer life and it availing much. How does this theologically, how does this work out? And the truth is, is I've struggled with this. I have wrestled with this so much in my life. And, and I'm just gonna be honest with you. Like, especially early on in my Christian faith, I had this feel, I had this like kind of a, a opinion of like, well, you know, kind of like this fatalistic view of que sera, sera, you know, like what will be, will be. God, you know, God is holy, God is sovereign. I don't really need to pray. And I almost thought, well, in good motives, like because I was more faithful and I was more mature, I really didn't need to pray because I trusted God and I, he knows better than me, right? He's gonna do what he's gonna do. I trust it. But I'm not God, he is, so I trust him, so I really don't need to pray. I almost had this view of just arrogance. I mean, and I, I didn't know it was arrogance, but it caused me to just not pray. And, and I don't know about you guys, but I don't know how many of you guys have struggled with this question of why pray. What, what, is this, what does this accomplish? How does this work out? What is God's will, God's sovereignty, his plans? How does that all work in tangent with our, with our prayer life? And how does that affect each other? And, 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 and as I've grown older, as I've matured in my faith, what I've realized is that a proper view of God and understanding his sovereignty should never and can never squelch our prayer life. 
In fact, it's because we have a proper view of God, it's because God is sovereign, it's because he's holy, that we actually do pray because this sovereign, holy God has somehow, for some reason, decreed that a way, the way that I'm going to accomplish my will is through the prayers of my people. That somehow, I don't know how all this works out, but my will will be accomplished by the means of prayer. And so us who are maturing in Christ don't run away from prayer because we trust God more more surely. No, we run to prayer because we trust God more surely. And so prayer is a huge thing. So this morning, we are going to look at this question, why do we pray? How should we pray? What's the point and purpose of prayer, right? If God does not change his mind, right? Numbers chapter 23 says, God is not human. He does not sin. God is not human. He does not change his mind. We know that God is not getting new information, right? You're not telling God anything new. He's not like, oh, I didn't, I'll say some more, right? I didn't know that. No, God knows it all, right? So we're not giving him new information. We're not changing his mind. So what are we doing with prayer? Luke chapter 11. This is where we're going to spend. Luke chapter 11, 1 through 13, if you have your Bibles. This is the New King James Version on the screen. Now it came to pass, as he was praying in a certain place, when he ceased that one of his disciples came to him and said, Lord, teach us how to pray as John also taught his disciples. So he said to him, them, when you pray, say our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread. Forgive us our sins as we forgive everyone who is indebted to us. And do not lead us into temptation, but deliver us from evil. And he said to them, Which of you shall have a friend and go to him at midnight and say to him, friend, lend me three loaves. For a friend of mine has come to me on a journey and I have nothing to set before him. And he will answer from within and say, do not trouble me. The door is now shut. My children are in bed with me and I cannot rise and give you anything. I say to you, though he will not rise and give him because he is a friend, yet because of his persistence, he will rise and give him as much as he needs. So it begins with, okay, Jesus is praying. We're going to see this pattern. If you read the Gospels, it's Jesus is praying, story, Jesus is praying, story. I mean, it's just Jesus is back and forth, praying, praying, praying. And his disciples come after the end of the prayer and say, hey, can you teach us how to pray? I mean, John's disciples taught his, or John taught his disciples how to pray. Can you teach us how to pray? Now, we have no record of what John taught his disciples, but we do obviously know that he taught his disciples to pray. And now, so his disciples come to him and say, Jesus, teach us how to pray. Now, that may seem foreign to some of us because maybe we've never been taught how to pray, right? When you became a believer, you're like, you may even have the question, I don't know how to pray. And then other believers get around you and say, oh, it's easy, you just close your eyes and start asking for stuff, right? You know, that's easy. And so it's just kind of hard. Like just that's, it's easy. You just talk to God. And, and, and so there's a reality to that. That prayer is easy. We are talking to the heavenly father, but the disciples say, no, no, I want to know how you pray, Jesus. I want to know the content. I want to know the purpose. I want to know what you, how you want to organize and structure our prayer life. And so they go to Jesus and Jesus gives them what we know as the Lord's prayer. Now, we're going to table the Lord's Prayer for a second, and we're going to go in and out of it throughout the sermon, but, but real quick, I do want to say this, because some of us may have grown up in denominations where every Sunday you say the Lord's Prayer, right? And, and, and you say the Lord's Prayer, and, and uh, you may not have believed that it's like the only prayer you can have, but I know I grew up in a denomination, in, in, a, in, a, in a denomination where it was almost like you prayed your own prayer, and then you always added the Lord's Prayer at the end, just like kind of as a safety net, um, you know, just in case, here's the Lord's Prayer. Like, but the reality is, is, did Jesus really mean for us to pray this word for word verbatim? No. If it was, if it was, then Luke's version would be sort of the same as Matthew's version. Right? Matthew has a different version than Luke. It's, it's very close, but it's not the same word for it. This is not a magic potion or a magic prayer that Jesus said, pray exactly this way. He says, pray like this, pray with the purpose of this, pray with the heart of this, pray with the content of this, but it's not a magical potion or a magical spell that if you pray this, then God is now bound to submit under your prayers. It's no, pray with the heart. Pray with the content of the Lord's Prayer. So with that being said, Jesus then goes into this parable, and he says, suppose you go to a friend's house, 
right? You go to a friend's house. You've got a friend coming over. It's midnight, and, and you can't. This is, this is before uh, 24-hour Walmarts. This is before Uber Eats, right? You know, you can't just run out and get something. Once the markets are closed, you're, you're out of luck. So if your friend, if you need, friend's coming over, you have no food, what do you do? You run to your neighbor's house, even if it's midnight, and it's like we used to do, right? You know, you needed eggs, you know, in the early morning. You go to your neighbor's house. Hey, can I bum an egg or can I bum, you know, butter? And everybody was happy about that, you know? I grew up, that was, that was the thing. Now it's like you, you, you get shot, you know? It's like, egg? <laughs> you know? Um, but it used to be this way. And so this guy goes to his neighbor's house and he asks for some bread. Now, at midnight, it was a weird night, weird, weird time of the night, even for them, especially for them, because they didn't have electricity, you know? Because so when the sun went down, you went down. When the sun rose, you rose, right? We didn't have Xbox. I mean, you could sit around a little candle and just cook a s'more, I guess, but there was nothing to do after the sun went down. So they all went to bed. So midnight, it's strange. Now, I don't want you to miss the humor here. Don't miss the humor. This is a funny parable, right? Jesus is saying, could you imagine this? Okay, so imagine you go home, Right, you go home tonight and you get you, you watch the football game and you get all tired and you put your kids to bed. It gets late. You put your kids to bed, tuck them in, read the stories. Then you lock all the doors and you set the alarm, turn off all the lights, go to bed around ten o'clock. You know, put your gun in your on your in your safe and whatever your nighttime routine is. Um, and then three two hours later, you're sleeping and all of a sudden you hear and you start. Honey, get the gun. Get the gun. No, uh, you're like, what is that? And then you hear, hey, let me in. It's me, David. And you're thinking, who, David? My, my, my pastor? My pastor? Yeah, it's me, David. Your pastor. I need some bread. And you think, oh my gosh, my pastor is drunk, you know? <laughs> What, what is he doing? And I'm like, no, 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 let me in, please. I need some bread. I've got friends coming over. Please give me some bread. And you, and at that moment, you would do exactly what this guy does. He says, get out of here. Like, leave. What are you doing? Go home. Go sober up. Go home. You're embarrassing yourself. And that's exactly what he does. But then Jesus says, he, brought, he drives the point home. He says, I say to you, though he will not rise and give him because of their friendship, yet because of his persistence, he rises and gives him as much as he needs. So he says that finally, as he realized that David's not, I'm not leaving. I'm like, guys, come on, let me in. I need bread. I need bread. Nobody else has got me bread. Like, you're not going to wake up and say, I really love my pastor. He's a good friend. I should get up and give him bread. I'm going to give him bread because he's my friend. No, you're thinking, this dude, I'm about to punch him, okay? He's going to wake up my kids, and I can't, uh, he's going to do, okay, fine, whatever. Go away. Here's your bread. Take whatever. You need some eggs? You need some butter? Take it and go, man. Get out of here. Like, you're going to wake everybody up. And it was out of that persistence that the guy finally said, you know what? I'm going to give you whatever you need. Just leave me alone. And so that's the point. But then Jesus kind of drives the promise here. Now, this word persistence that he uses is the word shamelessness. It's the word insolence, audacity, boldness. And so Jesus is saying this man boldly came to his friend's house and persistently knocking, give me some bread. And then he gives us the promise. He says, so I say to you, ask and it will be given to you. Seek and you will find. Knock and it will be opened to you. For everyone who asks receives and he who seeks finds. And to him who knocks, it will be open. Now don't miss this. Jesus says, it says, I say to you. Now, who says to you? Jesus. It's not a trick, trick question, right? Jesus says it. Who is Jesus? God incarnate. He is the eternal, omniscient, omnipresent, sovereign, holy, set apart, God in the flesh. And so when God says to you, is as if God said, when Jesus says to you, it's as if God says, Jesus is speaking in the complete authority of God as God. And when he makes a promise to you, he is speaking with the complete authority as God. And so he promises, when you ask, you will 
Fine. No. Receive. You guys are right. You guys all said, I'm like, I was wrong. But then I was wrong. Uh, When you seek, you will find. And when you knock, it will be open to you. That's the promise of Jesus. And he reiterates this promise. He says, he says, for everyone who asks, receives, and who he who seeks, finds, and he who knocks, the door will be open. But then he goes and he says, for what father among you, if his son asks for bread, will give him a stone? Or if he asks for a fish, will give him a serpent instead of a fish? Or if he asks for an egg, will offer him a scorpion? Okay, so Jesus is kind of appealing to our natural tendencies as fathers. He's like, what father? Like, how, could you imagine what kind of father? Like, if Judah comes up to me and says, Daddy, you know, she has a British, Daddy, can you have some more? Like, uh, if she can I have some fish sticks, Daddy? I'm like, fish sticks? Fish? You want fish sticks? You want fi- here's a Here's a rattlesnake. Take that, right? Like, what kind of father? You know, you want a piece of bread, suck on a rock, right? Like, no father would do that. Oh, you want scrambled eggs? Oh, you're so cute. You want scrambled eggs? Here's a bag of scorpions. Like, like no father would ever do that. And what Jesus is doing, he's drawing back to, once again, the Lord's prayer in that we have a heavenly father. When you pray, you pray the word Abba, Daddy, Father. And he's going to draw this comparison between earthly fathers and a heavenly father. Earthly fathers and the father that we have in heaven. And he says, if you, being evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your heavenly father give you the Holy Spirit to those who ask? To ask. No, so Jesus is saying, now this is once again, he says, you who being evil, this is kind of reiterating the, 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 uh, the principle or the doctrine of total depravity. He didn't say you who are doing evil. He says you who are evil. It's just total depravity. But he says us being evil, human fathers, human parents, we still know how to give good gifts to our children. We still have that desire to give good things to our children. Even unbelievers have this desire because we are made in the what? The imago Dei, the image of God. And so therefore, we're going to have this image in us that wants to take care of our children. It may be stained, it may be warped, but it is in us, it's innate. So Jesus is saying, if you as wicked fathers, wicked mothers who are sinful, who, who don't love perfectly, and we don't have infinite wisdom to really even know what's best for our children, right? We don't have that wisdom. If we know, I mean, cause that's right. That's the, that's the biggest thing I've heard, you know, as parents, when I became a parent, I didn't realize how much parents don't actually know, right? You, you think your parents, like they've got it all together, but they're just like trial and error. Like we had eight siblings. And so they just kind of tried one thing at the, you know, different things on us. What, what works? That didn't work. Let's try it on this kid. Okay. Um, but that's the biggest thing. I mean, last night we were talking, you know, I had Darren and, and, and Maria over, and we were talking about children and raising children. And, and we were like, you know, this is, as well, especially moms, they're like, I just, I don't want to mess up my kids. Like, that's our biggest fear. I just don't want to mess our kids up, right? I want to do what's best for our kids. I want to make sure they go to the right school and make sure they, they, they are disciplined the right way. And I want to do all these what's best. And so then we'd go and buy all these books, these parenting books, like 20 books, and they all contradict themselves. And, and it's like, then you're more confused than ever before. Like Savannah, in our four years of kids, we've had like, we have like a whole library of how to train your child. And, and I, I don't know. I just, <laughs> I just, beat them. Okay. Uh, and it works. Um, I'm just kidding. I don't at times. Um, but let me give you at ease. Let me put you at ease. This is good parents, moms, especially moms. I'm going to make you guys feel a lot better. You will screw up your children and that's okay. They're going to blame you. They're going to blame you for everything. It's mommy's fault, daddy's fault. And that's okay. Because here's the thing. We have a greater father Jesus says, if you being a wicked father, you wicked or a wicked father or mama, you do know how to do good gifts or want to give good gifts to your kids, how much more your heavenly father, who loves perfectly, who is holy, who knows the beginning from the end, who knows, has the complete wisdom, lacks no information, how much more? But what does he say? What is the heavenly father going to give us? The Holy Spirit. This is 
powerful. This is powerful. Now, this is interesting, though, because in Matthew's account of this parable, this is what Matthew says. He says, if you then being evil know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father who is in heaven give good things to those who ask him? So Jesus says in Matthew, he says, give good things. Here in Luke, he says, give the Holy Spirit. So what's going on here? Is this like a contradiction? Is this a mistake? No. What Jesus is doing in Matthew, he's laying out this foundation, and then he goes in Luke, and he's kind of clarifying what is the good thing? What is the source of good things? Who is this? What is good things? It is the Holy Spirit, that any good thing in a believer's life is through the Holy Spirit. Amen? You guys with me? Okay, through the Holy Spirit. Don't miss this because this is why the name and claim it prosperity gospel saddens me so bad. It used to anger me. It used to make me so angry because I would watch these people get caught up in this slavery. But now it breaks my heart because God is offering us so much more than a new boat. He's offering us so much more. He's not, see, the name and claim it, the reason why it's such a horrible life, a horrible fallacy, a horrible doctrine is because it's saying that the greatest life that you can live that God wants for you is to live after your flesh, to satisfy your flesh. Where Jesus is saying, no, the greatest thing that I could ever give to you. So it's not, the promise isn't, hey, pray for a good gift and God's gonna give you a good gift. Nor is the promise the, the Morgan Freeman doctrine. You guys know Morgan Freeman? He played in that movie, Evan Almighty. And he has this famous quote. The famous quote goes like this. As he plays God in Evan Almighty, if you've never seen the movie. It's cute. But he says, let me ask you something. If someone prays for patience, you think God gives them patience, or does he give them opportunities to be patient? If he prays for courage, does God give him courage, or does he give him opportunities to be courageous? If someone prayed for a family to be closer, do you think he, God zaps them with warm, fuzzy feelings, or does he give them opportunities to love each other? Now, I've heard a lot of Christians come to me and, and quote this, and it's almost become Bible verse for many Christians. They almost use this as Bible. This is Bible verse, but I'm, I'm, gonna, I'm going to uh, tell you something that um, might shock you, but... Morgan Freeman is an actor. He's not actually God, okay? He's not. You know, so when he says this, it's not God promising you something. This is not in the Bible. This is not the Bible. You see, the promise is not if you pray for patience, God's going to give you opportunities to be patient. And the promise is not even if you pray for patience, God's going to give you patience. The promise is, if you pray for patience, God is going to give you the source of patience, the Holy Spirit. If you pray for a gift, God is going to give you the giver. If you pray for comfort, God is going to give you the comforter. If you pray for hope, God's going to give you the source of hope. He's, you pray for power, he's going to give you the source of power. You pray for the cause, he's going to give you the effect. You pray, you pray for, or the effect of cause. You pray for love, joy, peace, patience, gentleness, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, and self-control. God is going to give you the source of it all. God is going to give you himself. God is going to give you his spirit. Every good thing in a believer's life is through the power of the Holy Spirit in us so much better than a boat it's so much better than a bigger 401k a bigger a better not a bigger wife a better wife <laughs> it's so much better than these things that so many people promise that this is what God wants for you know God wants you to be made in his image to give you every good gift to give you himself to give you his spirit so with that being said, I, I want to get back to this question. We've looked at the parable. Now, why do we pray? Okay, so why do we pray? Looking at this parable, what do we see here, and what is the reason why we pray? And the first reason why we pray, and some of us might not like this answer, but the first reason we pray is because God commands us to, right? That, that's as simple as it can be. God says, seek, ask, find. God says when you pray. God, throughout the scriptures, we see Jesus constantly commanding us. Even Paul says, pray faithfully, faithfully pray. It's a command in scripture, and that should be enough for us. God said it, I'll do it, right? Is that enough for us? 
Or, or are you like me when I, you know, I was younger where it's like, no, I, I need to work out the theology, the systematic theology. How do I need to figure out how all this works? I need to understand how God's sovereignty, God's will, God's plan. I need to figure out all this and the why. I need to figure out why we should pray before I obey, right? And I've said it before, but we should never, as Christians, our obedience should never be predicated on whether or not we know why. Our obedience comes because God is God and I'm not. And so we obey. Now, this, it's blessing. There are times when God gives us the why. There are times when God gives, you know, but we should never, we should always obey. It's like this. Uh, my kids, every night we, we do the whole routine. We brush their teeth and we try to keep them in the bathroom while we're brushing their teeth so they don't, you know, kill themselves. But they tend to sneak out of the bathroom. They run around the house with their toothbrush in their mouth. And we say all the time, don't do that. And what do they say? Why? Right? Well, the other night we were in the living room and Judah and Octavia were dancing and, uh, and, and Ian was trying to jump in, but he just kept falling over and getting knocked over. But um, Judah was spinning around, just going like this with a toothbrush in her mouth and I'm watching it. You know, I should have said something, but I'm like, let's just see what happens. Uh, and she gets dizzy and she falls right into the chair, the toothbrush jammed in her mouth and gashes the inside of her cheek. Should have had stitches. And I look at her and I say, that's why, right? Like it's, <laughs> that's why you obey because of this. And she's just crying, blood coming out. I'm like, okay, learning moment, teaching moment. Um, but <laughs> she's fine. She's, she's got a chipped tooth and all kinds of stuff from her other injuries. She's, anyway, but guys, God gives us these commands and we may not know the why. He may give us the why. But even if he doesn't give us the why, we know that he's a loving father, a good father, and he, more importantly, he is God himself. And so when he commands, he is commanding for our good, for his glory, and so we obey. Right? The second reason we, we pray, as we see in this section, is for sanctification. God's will will be done. But a part of his will is to sanctify, which just means make us holy, make us more in the image of Christ, to sanctify his people. That's what God desires for you. He wants you to become more like his son. But the way that he, God has chosen, he's not bound to this, he's not limited to this, but he has chosen in his sovereignty to use prayer as a means to make that done, to accomplish that will. Does that make sense? God has chosen prayer as a means, and I say that as a means to accomplish his will because a lot of times when we look at prayer, it's so easy for us to start getting into where the prayer becomes the source. That if I start praying this way, if I say the Lord's Prayer, if I pray five times a day, if I pray on my knees, if I pray on my face, if I pray while fasting, if I pray, you know, with knees on gravel, whatever it may be, I've seen that. If I pray, then all of a sudden God is now obligated to do what I've done, what I, what he, I want him to do. Our prayer becomes the source of change rather than the means that God uses and empowers. And this is what we see here. God is always the source, but God says, I want my will to be done, and when you pray, I am going to give you my spirit. So when you are stressed out, when you are impatient, when you are angry, when you're finding your heart filled with lust, you pray, and God promises, this is a promise from God, that he is going to use your prayer as a means to actually accomplish sanctification in your life. When you pray, God promises he will answer by sanctifying you. Some of us have been Christians for a long time and we're still dealing with the same garbage. We're not any closer to Christ and look, look any closer to Christ and we're still dealing with the same sins. My question to you is, how's your prayer life? How's your prayer life? Because God says, when you pray, I will sanctify. When you pray, I will give you the spirit of truth. When you pray, I'm gonna give you patience, the spirit of patience. So we pray for God's will to be done in and through our lives for our sanctification but then thirdly, we pray because of humility. When we pray, prayer forces us into a posture of humility. Right now, we live in a culture that's humanitarian, or humanistic, materialism, materialistic, um, 
And it's all just what we can touch, what we can feel, what we can accomplish, what we can do. And so anything that's good that comes out of your life is going to be by your sweat and by your blood and by your work ethic. And it's all going to be about you, right? This is the world we live. This is the air that we breathe. And so God says, no, I want you to daily remind yourself, remind the world, remind your friends, remind your flesh that you are not it. And so prayer forces us down into this posture of humility saying, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. God, you are holy. You are worthy. And it forces us into a position where we acknowledge that I'm not it. I'm not God. No goodness can come out of me. No, all goodness comes out of God. It forces us into that posture of humility where God is on his rightful throne in our lives. So in that sense, worship prayer becomes an act of worship where believers willfully say, I, I'm gonna give you my life, I surrender my life, I humble my life, I worship you. But also prayer breeds intimacy. The Bible says that the Lord knows what you need before you ask. The Lord knows what you need before you ask. The Bible says that the Lord knows every hair on your head. The Bible says that he, he knows the end from the beginning. He knows what's going on in your mind right now. Okay, so change your thoughts, all right? Uh, he knows it. He knows everything about you. So let me ask you, if, we, if prayer is not giving him new information, if prayer is not edifying him, if prayer is not informing him, if it's not educating him, who benefits from prayer? Who's it for? When God says, come to me with your concerns, come to me with your needs, come to me with your struggles, who is that for? It's for us. Because when you walk away from communication with the holy God, when you get to stand boldly before the throne room of God and stand in his presence and call him Abba, when you get to share with him your daily bread and give him everything you need, everything you have, and pray to him, God, please help me. God, give me my daily bread. God, help me in this situation. Give me strength. When we approach the, the, the throne room of God, we walk away from that conversation with Abba, with Daddy. We walk away from that conversation in peace, and joy, and contentment. This is why Paul says in Philippians 4, verse 6, he says, be anxious for nothing, but everything pray, be it by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving. Let your requests be made known to God, but this is what happens. This is what happens when you walk away, and the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds through Jesus Christ. Prayer Bold, confident prayer results in communication with God, and we get to experience the rich blessings from being in his presence. It's for you. Why do you pray? One reason, so you can be intimate with your creator. That should be good enough, but we got one more. Um, God ordains the beginning and the end, right? He ordains not only the ends of the universe, but he also ordains the means. And this is important because let's take, for instance, God's divine plan and salvation and how he structured it. God can save everybody he wants, right? God could just zap you and God can send a donkey to talk to you and, you know, and he can't use cats because they're from Satan, but he could use dogs and... Um, like he can do whatever he wants, but the way God has designed this, he says, I want to save my people. The way people are going to come to salvation is through the feet of the ones carrying the gospel, through preaching the word, right? That's what he says. He says, go and preach the word. And so through your preaching, God now is not the preaching is the, is the ends. The preaching is not the source. The preaching becomes the means. God uses the preaching of man, not just preachers, you guys. He uses the preaching of the gospel. He empowers it to accomplish his will in people's lives to bring them to himself. So it's not like we have no role in this. I, as a pastor, I can say, well, God, you're going to save anybody you want. You could do whatever you want. No, he says, I've ordained it in such a way that blessed are the feet who bring the gospel because then they get to be a part of what I'm doing. They don't, they're not, it's not them, but I'm asking them to be a part of my will, to get to see my will be done in their life. And so if I don't go, 
another will. And they get to receive the blessings. The same is with prayer. God asks us to pray, to be a part of his will as a means, not the end. Your prayers are not the means. Or they're not the end. They are the means. God is using them to accomplish his will. He empowers them to accomplish his will. It's through the spirit that he accomplishes his will, through your prayers. Through your prayers. Now, the thing about God's will is Jesus says, or James says, that the fervent, effective prayers of the righteous man avails what? Everything? Much. Right? So the question is, is do our prayers change things? Is the answer is yes. And it changes much. Do our, chair, do our prayers avail or help anything? Yes, they avail and help much. Our prayers change. God uses, God empowers, God, we get to participate in what God is doing. But then the question is, is why did God ordain it this way? Why has God ordained our prayer lives to be so important in his will? Not important in the sense of, me specifically and my prayers specifically, but prayers in general as a part of the means to accomplish his will. Why is that the case? There's a couple of trains of thoughts on this. The first thought is throughout scripture, and, and this is where my wrestling, okay, you guys, you're kind of witnessing a wrestle that, was, that I've been wrestling with since I was young kid, and God has been revealing some things to me, and I'm just really blown away by his heart with prayer. But one of the things that I kind of found in scripture is that God desires prayers of his people. Why? Because he desires the glory. Let me ask you this question. If you are dying on your deathbed in the hospital and nobody prays for you, who gets the glory? Who gets the glory? Who who does the doctor think saved him? Himself? Modern medicine, right? A coincidence, a chance, whatever. Let me ask you, if you're on your deathbed and and a group of people come into your deathbed and they all lay hands on you, we pray for you, for healing. The doctor's watching. Who gets the glory when God heals you? God. This is why we see Moses before and after the plagues, right? He prays. Now, if Moses didn't pray before and after the plague, who gets the glory? Mother Nature. That's weird. I can't believe Mother Nature did that. You know, so many frogs, what, right? There's prayer. So there's this aspect of the glory. But I think the main reason, and this is where I spend a lot of my studying in the past couple of years, the main reason that I believe God wants us to pray, that God chose it this way, is because God wants you, he wants me to participate in his will. He wants us to participate in what he is doing. Think about this. God, a holy God, a sovereign God who ordains the ends to the beginning, the beginnings and the ends. He, you, a finite being, a sinful being, a little creation. He says, I want you to get to be a part of. When you pray, you're going to get to see me move. When you pray, you're going to get to see my will be done. When you pray, you're going to get to see me operate. When you pray, you get to be a part of what I'm doing. Or not. Or you don't. Or you miss out. You see, we live, in the, we live in this mentality, individualistic mentality, that we think that, well, well, God's will is going to wait for me. And so God called me to pray, and I didn't. So God's just going to wait around until I do. I know I've said this before, but it ain't about you. God's will is going to continue. It's going to continue. It's going to continue. You get to be a part of it or you don't. Doesn't mean you're, once you don't, once you mess up, once you don't pray, God's like, you're out. No, jump back in it. But he's going to operate. He's asking you to continue to come back to him. If you miss out, if you don't join in, right? Because this week we read the Old Testament this way. We think, well, Moses, there is something special about a Moses. There is something special about Joshua, about Elijah, about Isaiah. No, the Bible says Elijah was a man with a nature like me. There 
was nothing special about Elijah, nothing special about Moses. The difference between, uh, between John and Moses in the Old Testament, you don't even, who's John? Exactly. The difference is Moses chose to participate in the will of God, to answer the call when God called him. Moses could have easily been Hank. And we'd be reading, Hank parted the Red Sea. Hank led the Israelites out in the wilderness. Hank went up to Mount Sinai. Because it had nothing to do with Moses plus God equaled greatness. It was God was going to do what he did. God was going to accomplish his will. And God invited Moses to be a part of it. And this little finite being, imperfect, stuttering man gets to see God move powerfully through his life. Mighty through his life. What happens, though, if Moses doesn't answer the call? We don't have to guess. Esther. Remember Haman? Haman's trying to kill the Jews. He's trying to wipe everybody out. He's trying to wipe the entire promises of God. And this is the will of God, right? Abraham, you're going to have many descendants, and through your descendants, the Messiah is coming. And so he's going to wipe out the entire people of Israel. An entire people of Israel. And that's not God's will. He's not going to, he's not going to do, go against, he's not changing God's will. God's will will be done. And so he says, hey, Esther, I want you to participate here. You get to be my mouthpiece. You get to see my will coming through your life. And then when he says the famous words, Mordecai says the famous words, we love it. For God has called you for such a time as this. But... We forget what God says before this. In Esther 4, 14, for if you remain completely silent at this time, relief and deliverance will rise for the Jews from another place. But you and your father's house will perish. Yet who knows whether you have been come, come to the kingdom for such a time as this. Esther, God's will is gonna be done. He's gonna save his people. He's going to rescue his people. He's going to deliver his people. And I'm calling you to be a part of it. I'm calling you to get to experience me working through your life. And 2,000 years from now, people are going to be saying, man, Esther was used by God. And Esther got to see the glory of God. And Esther was mouthpiece to save the people of God. He says, Esther, you get to be a part of what I'm doing or you don't. And if you don't, I'm, I'm, my will's not going to be, my will's not hinging on upon you. It's not based on whether you obey or not. My will will be done. It is based, it's going to be accomplished. So you get to be a part of it or not. If you don't, though, you miss out. You and your fathers will die and I will find another. I will raise another. I will call another. And then they get an opportunity to be a part of what I'm doing. And this is where many people step up and say, if, if you know your Bible a little bit in the Old Testament, you say, well, but Moses changed God's mind, right? Remember that? Remember when Moses prays and changes God's mind? That's what we, we kind of think, right? Um, but we know that's not true because remember the Old Testament says in 14 of Exodus, the Israelites are in the wilderness. They're grumbling, they're whining, they're complaining. And God says, I'm done with you. I'm wiping you out, killing you all. That seems to be God's motto, Okay. Killing you all. Um, and, and so he's getting ready to wipe them out. And then Moses prays. And then, we, and then God doesn't kill them. Now we read that and say, well, God changed his mind. But the same author who wrote Exodus, Moses, also wrote numbers that God is not human. He doesn't change his mind. So what's happening here? Did God really change his mind? No, we're missing the great picture here. We're missing the great, great story here. You see what happens. Go back to Abraham. God says to Abraham, you're going to have many descendants. That's my will. It's going to be accomplished. It's called an unconditional covenant, meaning no man can thwart it. No man can sin out of it. It's covenant. It's a promise. It will be accomplished through Abraham and his descendants. So that's going to happen. Fast forward to Moses. God tells Moses, key phrase, I'm going to kill everybody in this nation except for you, Moses. And out of you, Moses, I will make a great nation. You see what Moses is God's doing here? 
He's looking at Moses and saying, these people have forfeited their right to be a part of my will, be a part of what I'm doing. They don't have faith. They don't want to walk in obedience with me. They don't want to live in community with me. They're forfeited their right to be a part of what I'm doing, to be a means to my end. You, Moses, have remained faithful. You, Moses, remain in my will. You, Moses, get to be a part of what I'm doing. My will hasn't changed. It's still going. But now I'm going to use you, Moses. I'm going to use the promised seed of, of Abraham. I'm going to use the people of Abraham, raise you to be a great nation. My will is going to be accomplished and you get to be a part of it Moses but these people don't because they forfeited the right they stepped out of it they chose to walk away and then Moses does something amazing he does what we call intercessory prayer and he prays on behalf of the people of Israel and begs them begs God based off of God's mercy God's grace not their goodness please reinstate them to become a means to your end. Reinstate them to become a participant in what you're doing, in your will. That's the power of intercessory prayer. When you have people that are broken, when you have people that are sick, when you have people that are lost, you're praying that God on their behalf, that they get to see God's will be done in and through their life, and you're praying that for them, that they get to be a means for God's will to be accomplished. But then finally, why did God do this? Why does God use prayer? Why did God not choose another way? Here's my answer. Here's my biggest answer. I don't know. I don't know. Honestly, God is so beyond me. God is so far from me. But here's what I do know. Not far from me, but you know what I'm saying? His ways are higher and greater than my ways. I do know this. I do know God is sovereign. I do know his will will be done. I do know that he is all powerful and he is all holy. I also know that God commands me to pray. I know those two things. But then I, on the other side, I also know that my prayer does avail much. I pray, I know that my prayers actually change much. I pray, I know that my prayers actually do much. Now, how does this systematically, theologically work out? How does this all come together? How does God's mind, how does this all, I don't know, but I don't care. I don't care because I know the Bible tells me to do it. I know the Bible says he's holy. The Bible commands me to pray. The Bible tells me that my prayers avail much. Plus, I know it in my own life. I've seen God move in my own life through prayer. I've seen miracles through prayer. I've seen heal, the healing of prayer. I've seen cancer healed of prayer. I've seen many things healed through prayer. Even this week, the simplest things, God, man, this is how God loves me. This is how God cherishes me. And then I pray that you have the, we all have the same thing, but God just looks after me. And I can't, I, there's times when I'm like, God, I just can't believe you love me this much. This week, two weeks ago, I, I, I've been praying, God, God, I just really, you know, I, and it's not been a fervent prayer, but it's been a prayer of like, God, I, I really want to go back to school. I really want to go back to school. You know, and, and I want to go get back to my, get my master's degree. You know, I have my bachelor's in theology or bachelor's in biblical studies. And I want to go back and get my master's in divinity just, just so I can brag it over you guys. Um, I'm just kidding. Just because I love, I do, I love school. I love learning and love growing. And, but I'm like, you know what? I've got four kids. I've got, they're all under the age of three. And I, you know, I've got a wife. I've got a, you know, I've got a church. I've got a bunch of other babies here. And, and, uh, I'm like, I don't know if I have time. I don't have the money. And, and so, so I'm, but I was like, God, you, your will be done. I just want to go to school. I'm going to put it out there for you. I get a call two to two weeks ago from this girl. This girl calls me, Des, calls me up and she says, hey, I'm with this church up in Washington, D.C. And we're part of this program. I didn't, I wasn't looking. I wasn't searching. I wasn't, there was no Google like tracking me. It's like, which college? None of that. She calls me and says, there's this program, this scholarship. I would love, you are a perfect candidate. I randomly found you online and was watching some of your sermons. She's probably watching. Hey, Des, you're watching right now. And I, I just feel like you're a perfect candidate for what this school's doing, offering. So you would, you, I would love for you to apply. And so I apply. And I get like one of 40 some of the people that got offered this free scholarship for completely paid my master's degree completely paid off not one thing 
And then on top of that, and then on top of that, this is how God works. My schedule is so crazy for the kids. I'm like, I don't want to take care of my fa- away from my family. So she's like, oh, and, oh, and not only that, but all the classes are just 8 o'clock, and, and eight, uh, 8 o'clock at night on Monday and Thursday. So the kids are already in bed. And not only that, but they said, you know, because I don't have, we don't have the, we have, you know, money, but we don't have the money to, to spend on all these books that college requires. He says, we don't require you to buy any book. All you need is the Bible. I'm like, God, you're so good. And then we have members here that offered me, uh, you know, a while ago because I knew I wanted to go to college. And so they gave a little trust fund, a little fund of a thousand bucks for our college, for my college further education. And so I'm like, because they asked that you need to have a computer. You never said, I don't have a laptop. I have a little, I have my little iPod, iPad, you know, like a little midget on thing. And like, you need a computer. So now I have a thousand dollars. No books required, none of that, but I am able to buy a computer. I'm able to go to two years of master's degree for free. That's how God answers. That's how God moves. I don't know how it theologically works out. I don't know how it all systematically how it works out. I just know that God moves through prayer. And that God uses the prayers of the righteous to avail much as the means. And so the question now becomes the final question that I want to answer is, how should we pray? How should we pray? James says that the fervent prayers of the righteous are powerful and avail much. Once again, he doesn't say the cavalier, the arrogant, the casual, the formless prayers of the unrighteous. He says the fervent prayers of the righteous. Now, that word righteous doesn't mean perfect, but it means children of God who are chasing after the will of God, whose sole purpose in their life is, I want to please God. And so their desires are being formed by his will. It's that, so it's the fervent prayers of the righteous change and avail much. And this is what we see here in the parable. Jesus says, the persistent prayer, the persistent friend that knocks and seeks and finds. And so it's this idea of ferventhood, which is basically, we means that we pray with some degree of passion. Now, our passion is proportioned to our, the seriousness of the need, right? But when David was losing her son, his son, what does this say? He was on his face. He didn't eat for, for days upon end. He, did, he fasted and he prayed and he cried out to God and he cried out to God and he cried out to God. He didn't move. He laid his body on the ground is what he says. It says in 2 Samuel, he was laying on the ground. But then God doesn't answer the prayer. And when he doesn't answer the prayer, what does David do? He gets up and immediately goes and worships the Lord God and he eats. So God didn't answer David's fervent prayer. But then we go back to Esther, when right before Esther's like, I'm going to be your mouthpiece, God. I want to see your will be done. I'm going to go to the king. But she goes to the Israelites and says, please fast and pray for me. Please fervently pray for me. Get on your face before God and beg God that he will save me and that he will save his people. And so the nation of Israel fervently prays and God's will is done. The people are rescued. Let me ask you a question. Can your prayer life, are there times in your prayer life that you could describe it as being fervent and persistent? Because so much of our life and our prayer life is just flippant and quick and to the point. And there's nothing wrong with that. We're called to have a relationship with God and, so, and have a pray without ceasing, right? So it's almost inappropriate that on your way to work, you're like crying out to God and just tears and sobbing that God will give you a good day. Like, like it's just, it's almost inappropriate. So we are called to just have a relationship, a daily walk. You get up out of bed and you say, God, bless this day. Let me live a life for your glory. Just give me strength for this day to bring you glory and to bring somebody to Christ. Send me somebody, right? You just get out of bed and you pray before your meal. God, let this Burger King be healthy. Like you just pray throughout our day. But have there been times where you are praying and you could describe it as fervent and persistent? So this is this is this convicted me. This convicted me hard this week. Because 
I can't tell you how many times, how, when was the last time I fervently prayed for anything? I think the last time I fervently prayed for something was my, my dad to be healed from cancer. And God didn't heal him. I wasn't mad at God. So, but that's the last time I fervently prayed. And it's not like I don't have things to pray over. I've got, I've got siblings who don't know Jesus, who've walked away from the faith that if they die today, they're going to hell. I've got, I've got little Ian. I've got this little boy, this, this foster child, this son of mine living in my house. And we just got the news a week ago that it's more than likely he is going to be back home with his mom by the end of the, by the, end of the summer. The last months we have with him. And this week I'm broken. I mean, this I would go to the elders and we're I'm just telling them, expressing what I'm feeling, but God just broke me. And all Wednesday I'm praying and I'm just, just crying out to God. And I'm like, God, please, if I can't be his father, if I can't, if I can't hold him, if I can't raise him up, if I can't teach him, if I can't lead him, if I can't teach him what it is to be a husband, teach him what it is to be a, be, be a father, if I can't teach him how to be a good sibling and a good brother to his sisters, if I can't do it, if he's not gonna have an earthly father in his life. I'm just begging God, please let, let him come to a living knowledge of a heavenly father early. I'm just praying, crying out to God. Ultimately, I'm praying, God, let him stay with me. Stay with me. And all week long, I have been fervently begging God, persistently begging God that God's will be done. Yes, but I want this child to be my son forever. I want him with me and I was just broken because, and here's the thing, I know some of us in this room. This week I've had three calls. Three calls of one person dying of terminal cancer, got the news. Another person having a, a disease, a very serious disease that they're struggling with. Another person had terminal cancer and they're fighting it. Pain and suffering going on in this room. I know parents have kids that have walked away from the faith. Parents have kids that are, that are not in the faith. If they die today, they're going to hell. We have friends and family members and people whom we love. Are we praying for them? Are we fervently, passionately, persistently, boldly approaching the throne room of God and praying for these people? Or for ourselves. I know it brings up emotion. I know it brings up fear. I know we have fear and anxiety with what we're going through. But are we channeling that and using that and allowing that to be laid at the feet of Jesus and causing us to go back to him and pray and pray and pray and pray and fast and fast and fast? Have you ever fasted and prayed for something? If you wanted something so bad before God's throne that you did not eat and you just, you took off work because you wanted to get before the throne room of God. Because once again, I don't know how all of this works. I know some of the theology that God has revealed to me and I've shared it with you, but what I do know is God wants his children to come to him, not just in ferventhood, not just in passion, but all day long, all, every time without ceasing. But there are times he wants his children. And so my prayer is that we become a people who get to taste and experience the will of God in our, through, our, through our lives because we are obedient. And we trust that when we pray, things happen. Like my prayer is that we will truly not just know but we'll truly believe that the prayers of the righteous avail much.